All right, well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13? Now, as we uh, have been spending a, a few weeks here studying Matthew 13, and we said that Matthew 13 becomes one of the three major discourses that the Gospel of Matthew is kind of built around. The first is the Sermon on the Mount, which covers chapters 5 through 7. Then, chapter 13, which contains the seven kingdom parables. And then finally, chapters 24 and 5, what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And so for the last few weeks, we've been studying these kingdom parables. Now, a parable, as we have said many times before, is simply an earthly story based on some ordinary situation or whatever that is then used to illustrate a spiritual truth. Or, in the case of Matthew 13, a kingdom truth. And so we have gone through these parables, looking at them. And as Jesus is finished now teaching on these parables, he said to them in verse 51, these will be his apostles, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Boy, I wish they would have said, Lord, can you give us a little more? You know, uh, can you just give us a little more? No, they, you know, said, Yes, Lord. He said, you know, have you understood all these things? The word Understood comes from a Greek word that literally means to put together. He's asking them, have you rightly put all these things together that I've been teaching you? I mean, you know, do you understand the things I have been talking about with regard to the kingdom through these parables? Do you understand all this? And they said, yes, Lord. Now, I have a hard time with that, okay? I mean, these guys were, at this point, not spirit-filled yet. They were saved, but they were not spirit-filled yet. They didn't get spirit-filled until Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. You have godly, spirit-filled theologians that have wrestled for centuries as to the exact, exact meaning of some of these parables. Of course, the ones that Jesus interprets, we don't have to worry about. It's the ones that he doesn't interpret that we are left to interpret on our own. They're the ones that often give us fits. And here's a group of Galilean fishermen, basically, unspirit-filled men. And Jesus gives to them these very profound uh, parables. And he asks them at the end of all of his teaching of these things, Now, have you understood all these things, guys? Oh, yes, Lord, we got it. Why do I get the impression it's kind of like explaining to a five-year-old Einstein's theory of relativity and then asking the child, Do you get it? Oh, yeah. Well... Jesus didn't call him on it, although I kind of see him rolling his eyes a bit. And then he gives what some have called a final parable in verse 52. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Jesus now considers his twelve apostles to be scribes, in a sense, trained for the kingdom of heaven. A scribe back then, a Jewish scribe, was not only somebody who copied the scriptures, but it was a man who had given himself completely over to the study and teaching of the scriptures. We, we remember Ezra of the Old Testament. He was a scribe and a priest. It was said of Ezra that he had memorized the entire Old Testament scriptures. Of course, they didn't call it the Old Testament. They just called it their holy scriptures. But it said that Ezra had memorized all of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, it was not uncommon for scribes to have memorized all of God's Word. Again, this was their whole life. 
This is what they dealt with. They lived it. Uh, every day they were studying and they were copying and they were then teaching God's word. And so in that regard, Jesus now is likening his apostles and really all of us to scribes who have now been instructed. The Greek word there is where we get our word discipled from. They had been discipled in the truths of the kingdom, and now Jesus said they were equipped to be teachers of God's truth to others. He said they were like a household who brings out of his treasure things old and new. Jesus is saying, if you understand these things, you're like a scribe who owns a house in which he has new valuables alongside old antiques. Although in this context, the old and new treasures Jesus is referring to are the truths of the Old Covenant alongside the treasures of the New Testament, New Testament truth, which is now being revealed to these men in the Gospels. In other words, the Word of God contains old truths and new truths that we can learn from and share with others. In the Old Testament, we have a very rich deposit of what we might call not old truth in the sense of outdated, but older truth, all right? Let's not call it the Old Testament. Let's call it the Older Testament. Because some people get the impression when we say the Old Testament, we mean the outdated Testament. Uh, you know, old news. And we have to confine ourselves just to the New Testament. And that is not true. God has given to us in the Old Testament many precious truths that transcend the Old Covenant. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that how God at different times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So God's Word is the continuing, the, the um, unfolding revelation of God's truth. It started with the Old Testament and was completed in the New Testament. But listen to me, all of these truths are connected and they, listen, never contradict each other. As somebody has said, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed, and in the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. You really can't have one without the other. And because they understood what Jesus had taught them, I don't think they understood it all, but they probably got their minds around a lot of it. As Jesus taught them these, these new truths that have come out of the storehouse of God's treasures of truth, His Word, now, he said, they were obligated to share these treasures with others. And that applies to us, guys. Um, we're like scribes who brings out of our household. What does that mean? Well, Paul says that we are all members of the household of God. And God has entrusted to all of us his truth. And because we're all part of the household of God, in other words, the family of God, as such, we are now scribes in the sense that we are to handle and study and teach the word of God to others. We are privileged to be trained, and that's what a church is. You know, church is really not for unbelievers, although we welcome unbelievers and we try to give them the gospel. Church, Bible study, that's for the saints, that you might grow and develop and then go out and minister to others. You have been trained in the Word of God, and, and, and as such, you are now privileged to share these treasures found in God's Word with others, with others. In fact, when he says in verse 52, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. 
The Greek word therefore brings out is ekbalo. And it literally means to cast out. Or in other words, to scatter, to distribute widely. But in this context, the word could also mean generosity. And I think that what God is telling us here, what the Lord Jesus is saying is that giving out the treasures of God's truth, we are to do that freely and generously to as many people as possible. That's why here at Calvary, we try to give away God's word as much as we can. And we would give people the CDs for free, but I know human nature, all right? And when you say, look, the CDs are free, people would grab everything on the table and take it home and not even listen to it. So to keep that from happening, we just charge enough to break even. Now, people have come to me and said, look, I would really love to get some of the CDs. I can't really afford it. Don't worry. What do you want? Well, I want a book of Revelation. I'd love to study this book. I put it on a jump drive for them, give it to them, take it home, download it, listen to it, share it, give it to people. You can go on our website and download anything, any message we have for free. Because freely we have received and therefore we want to freely give. And I believe that God honors that. That when we are blessed uh, and God has allowed us to, to be able to, to, to get the word out there, we just do it, scatter the word, just, just give it out freely and uh, to as many as possible. But here's the thing I want you to see, though. Jesus refers to God's word as a treasure, as a treasure. But remember what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 6, verse 21. He said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is he saying? He is saying, whatever you really value, that's going to have a hold of your heart. And whatever has a hold of your heart will dominate your life. So we could talk about God's Word being a treasure and how much we value it. But you know what? If it really isn't something we truly value, and you say, well, why wouldn't a Christian value God's Word? I'm not saying that Christians don't technically value God's Word. It's just that it's more lip service than it is really a matter of the heart. There's a lot of Christians who are just not in the Word. They don't really read it faithfully. They don't really study it. <clears throat> they never memorize it or meditate on it. Why? Because they just don't see the value in it. Let's be honest. They just don't how is this going to do anything for me? And you can look at their lives and go, you know, they claim God's word is valuable and precious, but it doesn't dominate their thinking. It doesn't dominate the way they live. It doesn't have a hold of their heart. When you're with them, they never talk about the word. There's always something else, some new hobby or sports or whatever it might be, the Word of God really has not captivated their thinking and therefore it's not dominating their living. They just don't see the value in it. They don't treasure it the way they really should. Not to mention the fact that there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands, thousands of Christians throughout the centuries who have died that we might have a copy of God's Word today in our laps. For years, Christians would copy pages it passed them along in secret to copy and then pass to someone else because the Bible was outlawed. I mean, the people that worked to translate the Bible into our native tongue were hunted down, persecuted, and martyred. The devil does not want us to have God's Word. He knows that it will transform lives as living and powerful. How tragic today that we have now the ability to have as many copies as we want, but we don't read it. We don't value it like we should. But listen to what one person has said with regard to neglecting God's word. He said, These hath God married, and no man shall part. 
dust on the Bible and drought in the heart. And that's how it works. We will never benefit from God's word. You will never benefit from it if you don't appreciate it and value it. You say, well, why should we value God's word? Well, if that's not obvious, I feel sorry for you. But let's just, okay, why should we value God's word? First of all, we should value God's word because, listen, it's a timeless book. A timeless book. I won't have you turn to these. You can write them down. Psalm 119. And guys, Psalm 119 is the greatest chapter in the Bible about the Bible. About the, the absolute treasure that it is. I'll let you read the entire 119th Psalm on your own. I'm going to pick just some of it this morning. Pick it out. God's Word is a timeless book. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 152. Concerning your testimonies, another way of saying your word, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Hey guys, listen. Books come and go, but God's word lasts forever. You can go into any Christian bookstore and they will probably have a section of the best sellers for that month. And you know what? You go back there a couple months later and they're gone. You know, people have moved on to something else. But God's word lives and abides forever. It never has to be updated, revised, expanded. You know, you never see new and expanded. Well, I take that back. You are seeing new and Updated on a lot of new translations today because they're attacking God's Word. Uh, there's gender-neutral gender Bibles. There are gay-friendly Bibles. There are all kinds of things that the devil is attacking God's Word. But God's Word will always endure. You know, it was Voltaire, the famous French atheist, who died in 1778, who made that infamous prediction. He predicted that within a hundred years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the earth. You've heard that, right? He used to mock the Bible, ridicule Christians, laugh at them, gave them such a hard time. He was an intellectual, an atheist. He would just run people down who believed in the Bible. He said, within a hundred years of my death, the Bible will be eradicated from the face of the earth. You know, if you don't think God has a sense of humor... Ironically, 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used his own printing press to kick out thousands of copies of Bibles for distribution. God said, really? My word, okay, is going to pass away? My friend, you're going to pass away, Voltaire, but my word will never pass away. Didn't Peter say that? First Peter 1, verses 24 and 5. He said, because all flesh is as grass. In all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass wither and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's timeless. I love that quote by H.L. Hastings, which you've no doubt heard in the past. Let me read it to you one more time. He said, and I quote, Infidels, for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. 
Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would make on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his domain, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages. But the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They all die and the book still lives. End quote. Amen. We should value God's word because, first of all, it's a timeless book. And secondly, it is a truthful book. Again, Psalm 119, verse 142. The psalmist said, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Psalm 119, verse 151. The psalmist said, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Once again, Psalm 119, verse 160, the beginning part of the verse, the entirety of your word is truth. The all of it, not just parts of it, all of it is truth. Jesus in John 17, verse 17, the night before his crucifixion, prayed to his father and said, Father, sanctify these men, his disciples, by your truth, your word is truth truth. Look, today God's word has come under attack like never before. And why do I say that? I mean, God's word has been persecuted since the beginning of time. But I say in these last days, it's come under attack like never before because it's not only coming under attack, which it always has from the world or from that which is outside the church, but today it's coming under attack from those inside the church. You have a lot of people inside the church, pastors and so on, who are basically wanting to move away from sound doctrine. Even as Paul said in the last days, people would, would no longer want to endure sound doctrine, healthy teaching from God's Word, but would rather gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them things that they want to hear instead of what God has said they need to hear. Paul says, it's coming. Well, it's here. Okay? But you have people inside the church attacking God's word. Doctrine divides, they tell us. We need experiences. That's why a lot of Christians are getting into all kinds of contemplative spiritual experiences and emptying their minds and connecting with God, who they think is God. I don't think they're connecting with God at all. They're connecting with demons. As you empty your mind in that kind of an Eastern mysticism way by using a mantra or a breath technique until you enter the silence where your mind is emptied of all thought and now you connect with God. No, you don't. You're connecting with the devil and his demons who are masquerading as God. This is bringing all kinds of people together because experiences unite, doctrine divides. Let's focus on experiences. And what they're doing is they're preparing people for the coming one world religion which the false prophet will bring about is the Antichrist brings about the one world government. So we are in those last days. But you have a lot of people. You have liberals in the church, liberal theologians and pastors 
who say the Bible is nothing more than a collection of man-made myths and allegories and moral principles, all brought together under a single cover, which we can learn some things from, but certainly you cannot take them as inherent, excuse me, inerrant divine truth. The Bible is never intended to be looked at like that. I remember um, one of our Calvary pastors was talking about how that they had a new couple, and this fairly good-sized church, and uh, they had a new couple that came to visit. And the only reason that he had known about this was because somebody who had gone to the church for years was sitting right next to them. And as he did, as Calvary pastors do, opened the Word and began to teach verse by verse. And, w- and when he started to teach verse by verse and began to explain the, the verses and apply them, the guy looks at his wife and says, Good heavens, he takes this thing literally. <laughs> yeah. And we're not apologizing for that. Look. People today want to discredit, discount, do away with the Word of God altogether, claiming it's nothing but a bunch of man-made stories and legends and myths and things we can maybe learn some principles from, but it's not God's Word. Well, you know, Paul the Apostle, who was himself a very spirit-filled man, he didn't feel that way. He said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, teaching, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, in the context was pastors, but it applies to all Christians, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work of God, right? You realize the word inspiration there. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Greek word is theonoustos. And theonoustos, inspiration, literally means God breathed. God breathed. The idea is that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. That's an interesting way of putting that. Because it reminds us of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Where we read, And the Lord God formed man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And man became a living soul. And I believe what Paul is telling us is that God breathed life into the Scriptures the same way He breathed life into Adam. Do you realize that God's Word is a living book? Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living and powerful, right? It is the ability to change lives. I remember listening to a scholar one time who had to read the Koran. This guy was a Christian, solid Christian guy. But he had to read the Koran. I don't know if he was teaching a class, if he was a professor or what it was, but he had to read the Koran. Never had read the Koran before. And so he said, okay, over over the summer, he had to read this thing for some project he was doing. And so he, you know, propped his head on one arm and began to turn the pages. He said it it was the driest, the most dead experience I've ever had. When you're used to reading the Bible... And you, you take for granted the life that's there. But when you read another book like the Quran, how dead it really is. I, I was talking to one of our missionaries that we support, West Bentley, of far-reaching ministries, deals with a lot of Muslim countries and Muslims. Uh, they reach for the gospel. And he was saying how that Muslims, when they read the Bible, are getting saved in droves. I said, you know, wow, that's that's great. I said, you know, what do you think is what what do you think is going on? I mean, I know it's the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I knew that. He said, you know what it is? He said they're so used to reading the Quran, when they pick up the Bible and they begin to read it, there is life there. 
It just, it, there is something there. And, and it, it's the life of the Spirit. God has breathed into his word the very life of God. And it has the ability, if a person will read it and apply it, it has the ability to bring life into them. We are all dead in trespasses and sins, right? The Bible says from birth we were born dead in Adam. And when we come to Christ by hearing the word, or the gospel, or reading the word, or something like that, when we get the word into our hearts and we accept it, it brings life. As the psalmist said, the entrance of your word brings light. And of course, that light is truth, which brings life if it's embraced. You know, we talk about the doctrine of the authority of the Bible. When you read anything about theologians who are trying to communicate uh, about the, um, the authority of the scriptures, you often hear them use the phrase verbal plenary inspiration. All scripture is inspired by God, but the, the, the theologians will often use the statement, the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. What does that mean? Verbal, of course, means that every word in scripture has been put there by God. Every word, all right? In fact, we know from Galatians, I think it was 3 and Genesis 15, we know that whole doctrines are built on whether a noun is plural or singular, or whether a verb is in the present tense or the past tense. Entire doctrines, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot and tittle are two of the smallest markings of the Hebrew alphabet. We would say, not one dot of the I or cross of the T will pass away until everything God has said comes to pass. God doesn't just inspire in general, He inspires specifically. Uh, every word is there because God has put it there in the original, of course. As He spoke through Moses and David and Daniel and Paul and others that wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament. God inspired the very words that they chose. So verbal inspiration, every word has been put there by God. Plenary, it means every part of the Bible is divinely inspired and accurate. I talked to a pastor years ago who was of a particular denomination and we got to talking and he said, well, we believe that when the Bible talks on spiritual subjects, it's infallible. But when it talks on scientific subjects, it's open to error and can't be trusted. Look, folks, as my pastor has said many times, either the Bible stands together or it falls apart. Because if you say the Bible only contains the Word of God, now I am at the mercy of man to tell me what is inspired and what is not inspired. And I don't want to be put in that place. So either the Bible is inspired in its entirety, God breathed every part of it accurate and trustworthy, or you know what, let's close it and go home because I'm not going to take a chance that who, on who's going to tell me what is of God what is not of God. Of course, his pastor and his denomination was capitulating to the scientific community because, you know, there are Christians who are embarrassed at the creation account in Genesis because it doesn't line up with evolution. So to capitulate, what they do is they either believe that God made the amoeba and let it go and evolve, which is theistic evolution, which is unbiblical, or they just flat out deny that when the Bible talks about science that it can't be trusted. It's interesting. In the book of Hebrews, we read how the physical universe was made up of things that do not appear. It's interesting. God made the material universe out of things that you can't see. What do we call those things? Atoms? The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, says God hung the sphere of the earth on nothing. 
That's pretty interesting cosmology. From a book that was what? It was written 2500 B.C.? Hey, God's work can be trusted in its entirety. It is all truth in every part. Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word, right? Not most words that come from God's mouth. Uh, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's all trustworthy. It's all healthy. And if you will feed on God's word faithfully, guess what? It will impart its life and health into you. So God's word is to be valued because, first of all, it's a timeless book. Secondly, because it's a truthful book. And thirdly, because it's a transforming book. You know, one of the most dramatic examples I've ever come across about the Bible's divine ability to transform lives actually comes from a true story of the mutiny on the bounty. Now, you've heard of that, right? Uh, I'll, I'll just read what one author, one author says. He said, and I quote, Most of us have heard the story of the mutiny on the bounty, but few of us have heard how the Bible played a very vital part in that historical event. He said the bounty was a British ship which set sail from England in 1787 bound for the South Seas. The idea was that those on board would spend some time among the islands transplanting fruit-bearing and food-bearing trees and doing other things to make some of the islands more habitable. After ten months of voyage, the bounty arrived safely at the island of Tahiti and for six months the officers and the crew gave themselves to the duties placed upon them by their government. When the special task was completed, however, and the order came to embark again, the sailors rebelled. They had formed strong attachments for the native girls, and the climate and the ease of the South Sea Island life was much to their liking. The result was mutiny on the bounty, and the sailors placed Captain Bly and a few loyal men adrift in an open boat. Captain Bly, in an almost miraculous fashion, survived the ordeal, was rescued, and eventually arrived home in London, in London to tell his story. An expedition was launched to punish the mutineers, and in due time, 14 of them were captured and paid the penalty under British law. But nine of the men had gone to another distant island called Pitcairn Island, and there they formed a colony. Perhaps there has never been a more degraded and debauched social, social life than of that colony. They learned to distill whiskey from a native plant, and the whiskey, as usual, along with other habits, led to their ruin. Disease and murder took the lives of all of the native men and all but one of the white men, whose name was Alexander Smith. He found himself the only man on, the, on an island surrounded by a crowd of women and half-breed children. Alexander Smith found a Bible among the possessions of a dead sailor. The book was new to him. He had never read it before. He sat down and read it through. He believed it and began to appropriate it. He wanted others to share in the benefits of this book, so he taught classes to the women and children as he read to them and taught them the scriptures. In 1808, 20 years after the mutiny on the bounty, a ship from Boston discovered the community on Pitcairn Island. When the captain of the ship returned to America, he took news of the only mutineer to survive and what he called, and I'm quoting him, the most perfect Christian society that he had ever seen. A miniature utopia was discovered. The people were living in decency, prosperity, harmony, and peace. There was nothing of crime, disease, immorality, insanity, or illiteracy. How was it accomplished? By the reading, the believing, 
and the appropriating of the truth of God, end quote. Look, the Bible has the power to transform lives if, if it is read and applied, right? I was telling first service that years ago, my aunt, uh, we had given her a Bible for Christmas or her birthday or something. And when one of the relatives had gone over to visit her a few months later, they found that the Bible, she was using it to prop up one of the legs on her coffee table. Now, she got saved before she died. But, you know what, you can have a Bible in your house, um, but if you're not going to really read it or apply it, it's going to do you no good. All right? I mean, holding up furniture is not what God intended for it. And so listen, the Word of God should be valued because it's a timeless book, secondly, because it's a truthful book, thirdly, because it's a transforming book, and so therefore it is a treasure book. Again, Psalm 119, verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Psalm 119, verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Hey, folks, gold will only benefit you in this life. God's word will benefit you for eternity if you embrace it now and believe what God has said. In Romans 11, verse 33, Paul the Apostle said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he's talking about that which comes from God's word. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The word of God is valuable. But again, it will only benefit you if you treasure it. And it will only make your life rich if you obey it. And unfortunately, guys, we have in our laps the greatest treasure God has ever given us. I'm talking of, apart from Jesus who came in, in the flesh. But the Bible is Jesus in print, isn't it? The volume of the book is written of me. You have in your laps the greatest treasure God has ever given the human race. And yet, we don't really see it that way. We don't. This generation of Christians, I believe, has the lowest regard for God's word of any generation since the church began. You know why? Because we don't have to fight for our Bibles. We don't have to rip pages out and secretly copy them by hand and, and pass them along. We can go to the bookstore and get as many Bibles as we want. And you know what? Having access to something that, that easily, which doesn't cost us anything to own, we regard it very lowly, I believe. And we have kind of reminds me of something that Vance Havner, the great Baptist preacher, said at one point. Let me read to you what he said. He said, and I quote, I have read that years ago in that part of Africa where diamonds in the rough were plentiful, a traveler chanced on some boys playing. Closer investigation revealed that they were playing marbles with diamonds. He said, God forgive us today that we handle his treasures as though they were trifles and the coinage of the eternal as though it were play money. It is no time to play marbles with diamonds. End quote. Let me close by reading you a true story that comes from the life of a man named Robert Dick Wilson, a man who truly treasured God's word. 
Let me just read to you what one biography said of Dr. Wilson. He said, Robert Wilson was born in 1856. He graduated from Princeton University at age 20 and went on to earn both a master's degree and a Ph.D. He then did further postgraduate work in Germany for two years where he was exposed to the school of higher criticism. This is a big thing in Germany back in his day. What is it? A group of liberal theologians who got around and just ran down the Bible. Just sowed all kinds of doubt about its historicity, its reliability, etc. Just a group of guys that were just smashing the Bible every chance they got. Well, one day after one of these classes where the Bible was criticized, and in particular the Old Testament had been ridiculed as unworthy, untrustworthy, the story goes that young Wilson was about 25 years old at this time, was so heartbroken at hearing his professors rip apart God's word that he went back to his dorm, knelt by his bed, and he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, if you will give me another 45 years, I will devote the first 15 years to learning every language the Bible was written in. I will spend the next 15 years studying especially the Old Testament. And then I will spend the last 15 years presenting my findings to the world about the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of your word. Well, God was very gracious to Dr. Wilson. I think he lived another 47 or 8 years after that. During those first 15 years, he mastered, listen, 45 languages. He was an intellectual giant among giants. He not only became an expert in Hebrew and its kindred tongues, but he learned all the languages into which the scriptures had been translated down to the year 600 A.D. While still in college, he could read the New Testament in nine different languages. He had memorized the entire New Testament in Hebrew along with other portions of the Old Testament. And it was said that he could recite the New Testament in Hebrew from memory without missing a single syllable. Then he began to study the Old Testament. He studied every letter, 250,000 consonants. Remember now, Old Testament Hebrew has no vowels. He poured over every letter of the Old Testament. He compared it to copies of the Old Testament in various languages he had learned. He was trying to, make, trying to find out if the Old Testament that we had could be trusted. Was it, the, was it the same Old Testament that Jesus had and the apostles and the, the, the same Old Testament that Moses wrote and Daniel and so on? He came to the conclusion and wrote papers and books claiming that because based on all of his years of study that our Old Testament in particular is absolutely trustworthy, it is in fact the very word of God that God gave to Moses and to Daniel and Isaiah and so on. Wilson became the leading professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Would to God Almighty Princeton had at least one Robert Dick Wilson today. He became the leading professor at Princeton Theological Seminary where he spent many years defending the Bible against all comers. I mean, he shredded liberals. And if they tried to say what the Syriac says, he knew the Syriac, he could quote him, okay? He shredded liberals. Nobody would debate him after a while. He was so brilliant and knew his Bible so well and all the languages and so on it was written in, they stopped debating him. He just shredded them. And he turned out student after student who sat in his classrooms that he gave a strong foundation for their faith. Those men who trusted and treasured the Word of God. He gave them a love for the Word of God. 
uh, where they, they, they caught his love for the word. They, they, they picked up on his devotion, how he treasured the, the word of God. And they embraced it and treasured it and became a good, solid foundation for their faith. Well, the story goes that near the end of his life, at the end of one of his classes, a student raised his hand and asked the old scholar, Dr. Wilson, what is the greatest truth you have ever learned in all your studies of the Word of God? And this giant among men, this intellectual of intellectuals, with, with tears streaming down his cheeks, he said, the greatest truth I have ever learned is this, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God's word is a veritable treasure house of truth. But you don't have to be a great theologian to understand the greatest of those truths is the simplest of them all. That Jesus loves us because God's word tells us so. Talks about how he came down and died for our sins. You don't have to be a theologian. You can be a child and get your mind around that. That God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. Look, it's my prayer for this new year that God will give to us a renewed hunger for his word, that we would fall in love with the Bible all over again, that we would treasure it as we ought, and as we value it and we treasure it, that we'll take time to read it and to study it and to share it. Because it is living and powerful. But it will do no one any good if it just sits on your shelf collecting dust. Dust on the Bible, drought in the heart. That's exactly what we see today. May God give us the grace to treasure his truth. And to live it, to embrace it, and to share it. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, for the countless men and women who have gone before us who died that we might have your word in print, in our own language. Father, give us a renewed passion and hunger for your word. Lord, we don't want to play marbles with diamonds. We don't want to treat your treasures of your word like trifles. Lord, give us grace as we read your word to, to remind ourselves constantly this is the very words of God. They are God-breathed, and they have the ability to transform lives if they are embraced, believed, and applied. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Make us scribes of the kingdom, Lord, those who devote our whole lives to the studying, the memorizing, the teaching of your word. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.